Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Sunday Showcase. Highlighting some of the best audio storytelling found anywhere. All right here on the Mutual Audio Network. The following audio drama is rated PG for parental guidance. The following presentation is a production of 63 Audio and the Narada Radio Company, a proud member of the Mutual Audio Network. Do you dare go down into the cellar? Welcome. To the Cellar, miniseries three, starring the Narada Radio Company, and hosted by Cadavra Quivery. Greetings, creeps. <laughs> it's your lovely Cadavera, and I welcome you back to my beautiful cellar. Please watch your step. Those cardboard cartons are full of Irish whiskey. <laughs> yes, I seem to have inherited all these spirits from a spirit. <laughs> a friend who owned a liquor store, fell off the wagon. <laughs> Literally, right into the river. <clears throat> yes, apparently he was singing How Dry I Am as he went over. <laughs> well, he ain't dry anymore, is he? <laughs> oh, and so the other day these boxes arrived. <laughs> I've been wondering what to do with all this booze. Probably open a pub. What do you think? Oh, vampires can rent it to hold their Dracula fang club meetings. <laughs> or, or I could hold disco dance contests and may the best boogeyman win. <laughs> oh, oh, I slay myself. <sighs> oh, but let's get down to business. Fiends. <laughs> it's time to open my great big book of eerie tales and choose something devastatingly ghastly. (laughs) (laughs) Ah, yes. Oh, tonight, dearies, it's a ghost story. Our storyteller is an elderly man from a small town who, when he was younger, 
bought a house with an evil secret. <laughs> Ooh, my favorite kind of secret. <laughs> Let's meet the gentleman now, shall we? <laughs> Boy, that's some fire, huh? Yeah, wow. When I see a blaze like that, well, it really does something to a guy. I mean, it's destruction, right? But there's something beautiful about it, too. The color of the flames, the way they're so hungry, and... Huh? Am I a what? An ex-firefighter? No, no, not me. I, I was a steel worker, more than 40 years, over in Bartonville. I've been retired a while, 12 years or so. You get to see some fires in a steel mill, sure, but they're nothing like house fires. And in a city like this, small as it is, there ain't too many of them, so... This your house? No? Oh, you live down the street. People get out okay? Yeah? Oh, that's good. Boy, that's some blaze, right? I wonder how it got started. Probably electrical. I mean, the wiring in these old houses, you know? Yeah, probably electrical. My first house burned down, did you know that? Oh, no, you probably didn't. Anyway, that was uh, about 50 years ago, maybe more. It was a nice house, too. In a way, I was sad to see it go, but watching it burn, really... Huh? What do I mean? What do I mean what? Oh, oh, what did I mean by in a way? Well, <clears throat> that old house had something wrong with it. I'll tell you about it. Back in the spring of 1966, my wife and I moved into our house on Summer Street. It was a big old one, the biggest house on the street, and sat on kind of a bluff overlooking all the other houses on the block. It had been moved from another part of town a few years before, and from the layout, I always figured it had been designed like as a doctor's combination home and office, you know, from the 19th century or something. The house had a front door and a back one, but also a side door, which opened into a big room with a staircase. This was maybe the waiting room of the doc's office. Who knows? We planned to make this room into our formal dining room. And at the top of the staircase was two bedrooms and a small bathroom. Sandy, that's my wife. Sandy and I decided to let the kids have the upstairs bedrooms. And then she and me would take one of the downstairs rooms and convert it into our bedroom. We only had two kids at the time, a boy and a girl. But Sandy was pregnant with our third and we got the house for a song. Also, it was perfect for our growing family. The house was laid out with no hallways. One room led to another. Come in through the front door and you could walk a straight path to the kitchen in the back almost. I mean, there were doorways, walls dividing the rooms, but no corridors. Upstairs, top of the staircase, there was a landing and the two bedrooms opened onto that. The bedroom on the right had another door on the far side that led to the attic. I don't know why I'm giving you so much detail, but it's just that I want you to be able to picture the house the way it was laid out. But I was telling you that Sandy and I was going to convert one of the downstairs rooms to our bedroom. Believe it or not, this house was so old it actually had a parlor. There was a pair of like, oh, I don't know what you call them, maybe French doors leading off the living room. And it had another door, a smaller one. So we closed off the French doors and covered their windows with heavy curtains, and moved the bed and chest of drawers in. It was a pretty big room, and it had a closet, too. Kind of a rare thing for such a big house. 
because it was built, I guess, at a time when people used armoires and hat trees and stuff like that. The smaller door that was going to be our bedroom door opened into what the wife called her dressing room. It looked to me like somebody had put up a partial wall to make the room smaller and create a walk-in closet behind it. My wife naturally took the bigger closet, and I got the smaller one in the bedroom. So you got all that in your mind? Good. Now, on our first day in the house, I went to my closet to put some clothes in and nearly tripped over this thing that was just inside the door. Whoa, what the heck? What's the matter, honey? Is this yours? This what mine. This thing I tripped over. What is it? I don't know. Wait a second. It's, hey, it's a toolbox. Dear, have you ever known me to have a toolbox? It's an old one. Looks homemade. All out of wood with a rope handle. Oh, well, now that you mention it, that is my toolbox. Oh, shush. Have we had any workmen in this room might have left it behind? No. Look at those tools. They're all rusty. Maybe the last owner of the house? I don't know. Somebody may claim it, though. I'll put it in the back of the closet so I don't trip over it again. Ugh. Heavy. And so deep into the back corner of the closet, that old toolbox went, and I finished putting my clothes away. The next morning, I am putting the kitchen table together when I hear Sandy calling from another part of the house. Jean, Jean, will you come here? On my way. What is it? Did you see a mouse? Jean, dear, I do wish you'd put your things away when you're done with them, instead of setting them down any old where. I nearly broke my neck tripping over it. Honey, this is your closet. What would I be doing in your closet? Well, how do you explain this? Explain what? My wife puts her hand up at eye level, then points her index finger down to the floor. I look down and see an old wooden toolbox with a rope handle. How did that get here? You're asking me? The kids? Too heavy for the kids. Sure beats me. (laughs) I'll put it back in my closet. Don't look at me like that. It wasn't me. Later that night, I get out of bed to get a drink of water, and as I pass through the dressing room to the living room doorway... Oof! Ouch! Ow! God dang it! What the heck was that? Painfully, I get back on my feet and switch on the light, and what do I see? Well, you could probably guess by now what I see. An old wooden toolbox with a rope handle. Suddenly, I see red, and I pick up that old toolbox and limp across the dining room to the side door, yank it open so I can toss it out onto the porch, and... Standing right there in the doorway, backlit by our next-door neighbor's porch light, is a little old man. I can't make out his face, but I just get this sense that he's old. You know what I mean? What do you want, mister? The geezer just stands there, not saying anything. What is it? Do you know what time it is? Still don't say nothing. Well, I'm in pain and in no mood to play 20 questions with the guy, and I'm just about to slam the door in his face when the old fart's eyes take on some weird kind of glow, and he points at the toolbox hanging at the end of my arm and then raises his hand to point at my chest. What, is this yours? Your toolbox? 
Well, why don't you take it back then? I nearly killed myself on it. I don't want it here no more. I start to hand the box over to the geezer when I hear... Jane, what's going on? What are you doing? Nothing, hon. Nothing. Everything's all right. I'm just talking to... Huh? Where'd the old guy go? I turned my head for just a second to talk to Sandy, and when I turned back, the geezer had, poof, vanished. Well, I cuss a blue streak the entire time it takes me to cross the dining room, enter the kitchen, cross through the breakfast room to the back door, open it, look around to see if the old fart is out there, which he ain't, drop the box beside the doorway on the back porch, and return to bed. By this time, Sandy is sitting up with the bed lamp on. What was it? Nothing. Don't tell me nothing. You don't cuss like Blackbeard the pirate unless something has happened. Okay, it was something, I say, and I tell her the whole thing, including the old guy at the door who disappears under my very nose. My beautiful wife gives me that look and giggles. (laughs) You were just walking in your sleep and dreaming. Oh, I was, was I? Yep. Well, look at this scraped shin bone. Did I dream this? And look at this bit lip. Did I dream that? Did I dream the stupid old wood toolbox in the doorway? How the heck did it get there, I'd like to know. Where is it now? Took it out to the back stoop. Well, put a Band-Aid on your shin and take a couple of anison from the paint and come back to bed. So I stomp off to the bathroom and gingerly place a Band-Aid on my barked shin and as for the anison, instead of A-N-A-C-I-N, I decided to spell it B-O-O-Z-E and boy! Those two Anisons helped me go back to sleep, but good. Next morning is Saturday, and Sandy has written out a honeydew list for me, but first I am in the breakfast room, enjoying my coffee, and reading the funnies in the Saturday Journal Star. But then I hear a noise, and when I look up from Beetle Bailey, who do I see standing just inside the back door? It's the old man from last night! In the morning light, I can make him out a lot better than I could the night before. He's only about five foot five, and he's all gray. Gray hair, gray skin, gray beard, gray canvas clothes like they used to wear on the railroad or something. I crane my neck to get a better look at him, and I see he's covered with dust. And the dust is gray, too. A grayish white, actually. And I think, oh, great. This dust is going to be scattered all over the floor, and Sandy's going to have a fit. Then I glance down at the floor, and funny, but there's no dust down there. I look up at the old guy's face again, and now he's pointing again like he was last night. Not at me, though, but to something behind me. I turn and look, and maybe you can guess what I saw. Yep, on the counter behind me is that stinking old wooden toolbox. Well, I have had enough of this geezer and his raggedy old box of rusty tools, and now it is my intention to heave them both out the door. I reach for this toolbox, but in my anger, my grip on the rope handle ain't all that steady, and it swings down and smacks me right in the left knee. Oh, man. Ow, 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 ow. Son of a... Same leg. Same leg. Gene, what is it? Ouch. What's the matter this time? Look, it's him again. The old man. What old man? Where? There at the door. Where'd he go? 
Gene. Look, honey, I swear to you. You've got a lot of work to do today. You don't have time to be dancing around the room making a lot of noise. I'm taking the kids to mother's so that they won't be underfoot. And you need to pick up these rusty old tools and put them away. So that's what I do. Gingerly, favoring my sore knee, which is just above my sore shin bone, I stoop down to pick up the rusty tools and dump them unceremoniously into the toolbox. In amongst these old implements is a dusty pasteboard tag with a broken string. Without looking at it very closely, I can see what looks like a name scrawled on the tag in old-fashioned cursive. It's an Irish name, or something. Into the box it goes, without any further inspection. A little while later, Sandy is still at her mom's, and I'm in the living room, hanging up family pictures and such. I put an old photo of my grandma and grandpa up next to one of my folks, and I notice that the first one is higher than the second one. I know that the nails are perfectly even with each other, so I figure I'll have to adjust the hanging wire on the back of the one of my grandparents so as it'll be on the same level as the one of my parents. I take it down to make this adjustment, and when I do, I see that somebody or something has scrawled the words, get me out of here, on the wall behind the frame. It wasn't there before. I almost dropped the picture I'm holding, and it takes a long time for me to steady my nerves. But at last, I am able to take a breath. I hang the picture on the wall again, covering up the words, and go to the phone. Hello, Mom? Yeah, it's Jean. Is Sandy still there? Can I, can I talk to her, please? Thanks, thanks. Sandy, can you come home right away? No, leave the kids there. I, I, there, there's something I need to show you. Yeah, I'll be in the living room. Sandy got home only ten minutes or so later. Her folks lived only about a mile away, but it was the longest ten minutes of my life. I sat in a chair in the living room, biting my nails, staring right, left, up and down, trying to catch a glimpse of the old man who I knew, I knew, must have scrawled those words on the wall. But he was nowhere to be seen. Finally, my wife walks into the room, a concerned but curious look on her face. I hold up a hand so she won't say nothing, and I take her over to the pictures on the wall. Tell me what you think of this, I say, and quickly take the picture down. What do I think of it? I think you used a nail when I asked you to use a hook. What? What are you talking about? (sighs) I had taken the pic down with a great show and then watched her face to get a reaction so I couldn't understand her comment, but then I turned my head to see and the words were gone. There were no words on the wall. Sandy, I know what I saw. You need to see Nelson. Call his office on Monday and make an appointment. What's Nelson going to do for me? Just do it, please. This move has obviously put you under a lot of strain. He's a doctor. He can help somehow. Nelson was Nelson Boatwright III, M.D., the son and grandson of doctors, and an old friend and classmate of Sandy and me from high school. 
His friends called him Trey because he was the third, and after we graduated, hardly anybody but me called him that. Naturally, we started seeing him as our family doctor after he hung up a shingle, and many was the time he'd helped us when the babies were sick, providing a calm, steady, caring hand when Sandy and I were desperate with fear. She was right. Trey could give me the help I needed, even if he wasn't a head shrinker. Not that I really needed one of those, mind you. I knew that Sandy had intended me to call and get an appointment to be seen at his office on 4th Street, but I figured I could at least follow the letter of her law by calling him and inviting him to meet me for pancakes and coffee at the Arlington downtown on Court Street. Uh, we'll both have the number four well and buttered. Bring us some hot syrup and black coffee for both of us. Thanks. My God, Gene. It's been years since I've set foot in this place. Are the pancakes still as big around as the plate? You bet. And they still have the best coffee in town. Better than Sandy makes, I'm ashamed to admit. <laughs> well, it was good to hear from you. Thanks for inviting me to breakfast. Everything okay at home? You still on Prince Street? No, we're just moving into a place on Summer. I think the house used to be in your neighborhood, actually. Not Doc McBain's old place. Well, I'll be. I knew they moved it over to the south side, but not which street. And I was thinking it was probably an old doctor's house-office combo, so I was right. Side entrance for the patients, bedroom upstairs. That's the one. Well, I'll be. Yeah. So what is it, Gene? Huh? What's wrong? You didn't want to meet me in the office, so it's not medical, I'm guessing, but something's wrong. What is it? Before I tell you that, tell me more about Doc McBain and the house. What's to tell? He and his wife lived and practiced there for years. The house used to be across the street and down the block away from us. He didn't have any kids, so after they died, the house fell into disrepair. Someone eventually bought it, fixed it up, and moved it. That's all I know. Did you ever... Did you ever hear um, uh, hear about the house being uh, ha- haunted? What? No. Is that what this is about? Trey, there, um, there have been some weird things going on since we moved in. I don't have any explanation for them. Gino, that sort of thing is out of my league. You're probably suffering from the stress and strain of moving into a new place. That's what Sandy keeps saying. And she's probably right. Now listen. For the price of this fine breakfast, I'll give you this diagnosis. Rest up, smoke less, drink less coffee, and, uh, don't imbibe in too many Arlington pancakes. After today. (laughs) After today, agree. (laughs) Now let's dig in. That you, hon? Yeah. You've been gone a while. How did things go with Nelson? Fine, fine. You've got pancake syrup on your shirt. Guilty. Man's gotta eat. After we met up, I spent a couple hours in the library. Doing what? I wanted to know more about the house. The house. The house. I looked through old copies of the Times going back to 1890 when the house was built. I was looking for any stories about workmen dying during construction or disappearing or something, but I, I, I didn't find anything. But, but what does all this mean? What are you looking for? Sandy, the old man, 
the toolbox, the message on the wall. I know I'm not crazy, even if I am the only one seeing these things. I just can't wrap my head around the idea of a ghost in this house. Or whatever it is. (sighs) Supper's ready soon. Get washed up. That night, Sandy and me was reading in bed, she her Bible, me a biography of Abe Lincoln. Suddenly, at almost the same moment, we turned to each other and blurted out, Did, did you, you write, write in my, my book? Bible? What? what? Did, did you, you write, write in my... my... What, what are, are you, you talking, talking about? about? <clears throat> Look, there's a quote underlined in pencil. You cannot escape the responsibility of tomorrow by evading it today. Look at this Bible verse. Luke twenty-one thirty-six. Watch ye therefore and pray always that ye may be accounted worthy to escape all these things that shall come to pass. I didn't underline that. I didn't underline yours. I just felt a chill run up my spine. I'm going to sleep. All that next day, there were no weird happenings. I was able to get a lot of the things done on Sandy's list, and as I stood at the kitchen sink that evening, washing my hands before supper, I said, Pretty good day today, hon. Maybe that ghost thing was just stress, eh? (sighs) Dad? Hiya, Eric. Where have you been all day, son? Come on up, give your old man a hug. (laughs) Dad, he said to give this to you. Huh? What's this? It's a page from my Bible. Eric, what have you done? But I didn't do it, Mom. He did. Oh, Eric, your mommy got that Bible when she was a little girl. It's one of my treasures. (laughs) Now, now, hold on, Sandy. We're missing something. Eric. Yes, Dad? You said he did. He did what? And who is he? He tore the page out. The old man. He gave it to me and said to give it to you. Let me see it, son. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 3. How shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? Look, the word escape is underlined and circled. And look here, in red ink yet, it's written in the margin, get me out of here. (laughs) Eric, what did the old man do after he gave you this? He went away. Did you see him leave? Sure. He was in the living room, he handed me the page, and then he walked into the fireplace. The fireplace? I think he was Santa Claus. Maybe he went up the chimney. And he spoke to you? Well, kinda. I could hear his voice in my head, but his mouth didn't move. Eric, go get your sister and help her put on her jacket. But we haven't had supper. Eric, do not argue with your mother. Dad, I'm hungry. Sandy, what's going on? What? This is the last straw. When strange old men are coming into my house and coming into contact with my children, that's it. I've had enough. Eric, go get your sister. Oh, all right. Now, honey. And you, fix this. I don't care how you do it, but fix this. The children and I will be at my parents' house. And you can call me when this nightmare is over. 
And off she went. I've never seen such a look on Sandy's face, and I've never seen her pack a bag and bundle up the kids as quick as she did that night. Fix it, she said. Well, how could I fix it if I didn't know what the problem was? I walked into the kitchen and dished up a bowl of the stew that Sandy'd been making for our supper and ate it in front of the TV, washing it down with a few beers. Our living room is the room with the fireplace that my son Eric said the old man walked into. I liked that room. It was an almost perfect square, but the fireplace was set at an angle to one of the inner corners of the room. This placement was what I liked most about it. Most fireplaces are along an outside wall of a house, so technically, this room had five walls. So there I was, alone, surrounded by five walls, abandoned by wife and children, accused of I don't know what, and of which I was completely innocent, by the way. The stew had no taste for me. The beers went down like so much water. I didn't want to sleep in the bed alone, so I got a blanket and tried to sleep in my chair without much luck. The grandparents kept staring down at me from the opposite wall. Grandpa Charlie and Grandma Mo, that's what everybody called her, Mo, had a pretty stormy marriage, full of fights and falling outs. They were my ma's parents. Grandpa had worked on the railroad. Grandma had been a brakeman's daughter. Grandpa was a drinker, and he kept losing his job on the railroad, and he kept getting kicked out of the house by Grandma. I guess by 1966, he'd been dead about 10 years from liver failure brought on by his drinking. And people don't like to talk about it, but probably a dose of something else from the wild women he would run around with during the periods that he was living on his own. My mom would tell me stories, mostly to try and scare me into not being like him. They worked. That and my dad was the hardest working man I ever knew, and he set a good example. What's that? How did I feel about Grandpa Charlie? <laughs> well, to be honest, I worshipped him as a kid. You see, because he was so often out of work, he was available for me. The next village over was the real railroad town. It's where I was born and where I went to school as far as eighth grade. I went to high school here. Well, if not for the railroad, that village never would have existed. Anyway, by the time I was in school, Grandpa was parking his carcass at some sort of company house for railroad men, and I'd ride my bike over after school, and he was always glad to see me. Why, I learned most of my favorite dirty jokes from Grandpa Charlie, and he was always willing to share a few sips of his beer with me, so long as I never told my ma or Grandma Mo. <laughs> it wasn't until I started dating Sandy that I really understood how much he had hurt his family with boozing and philandering. <sighs> But to look at that photograph, snapped on their wedding day in 1905 or so, you'd never think that any of that stuff would happen. Anyway, with those eyes staring down at me, I did my best to ignore them and try to sleep. Yeah? Ah, good day to you, ma'am, and a fine day it is. My friend and me were hoping to see the good Dr. McBain about maybe doing some work around the house. Oh, I? And what are your names, then? Ah, Charles McCourt, ma'am. And this strapping chap is me dear chum, Thomas O'Banion. And what, pray tell, is your name? Wait, don't tell me. It's a flower. Your name is Rose, or or no, Daisy. You're definitely a Daisy. 
it's Molly. And you can just drop the stage Irish accent, friend. You look Irish enough, but I'll wager you've never been any farther east than Indianapolis. Eh, you caught me, Miss Molly. I'm a Chicago native, and Tom was born right here in this very town. Huh? And has the cat caught your tongue, Mr. O'Bannon? Do you normally let Mr. McCourt do all the talking for you? No, no, I can talk. <laughs> Is a doctor available? Charlie and I haven't had any work in a while, and we could use a job. Come in, come in. The doctor is busy now, but he has been on me to find some workmen to make some repairs, so you've come at an opportune time. Sit down here in the corner, and I'll give you some tea and a sandwich. <laughs> bless you, Miss Molly, bless you. You're truly God's servant on earth. Now you just stop that kind of talk, Mr. McCourts. <laughs> you two eat, and when you've done, I'll take you in to see Dr. McBain. So you're Chicago Northwestern men, eh? Normally we'd say yes, Doctor, but Thomas and I have been laid off for a while, and we're looking for any type of work that will help us keep body and soul together. This depression is hard on men like us, you know, sir. Yes, indeed. It's been hard on many of my patients as well. <clears throat> so listen, men, what's your experience outside of railroad work? Well, I'm, I'm very good, sir, with lath and plaster. And I'm a good hand with electricity and plumbing. Well, that is promising. I've had some water damage to the wall behind my fireplace, and there's some wiring in my bedroom upstairs that wasn't installed quite properly when we first had the house electrified. Why don't both of you come back tomorrow morning and you can get started? Hello, Tommy boy. Ah, there you are, Charlie. How's the wall coming along, then? Oh, not bad at all. How's the wiring upstairs? Hmm, really not bad. But we could probably milk the job a few extra days, get a few more of Mistress Molly's lunches under our belts, eh? I don't like to take advantage. Who's taking advantage? Here's a man with plenty, the doctor, and why shouldn't he share it? All right, all right. Don't go off on your Bolshevik ranting again. <laughs> I'm only Bolshe when it's convenient to me. You're not almost done, are you? You're working too fast, Tommy. Look, if we do a good job for the man, he'll be sure to give us more work when it comes up. If we don't starve to death in between. Pfft. Say, guess what's behind this wall? <laughs> About 40 years worth of dead mice. Surprisingly, no. Actually, it's a kind of pocket. Pocket? I, I don't follow. You know how the, the fireplace is set into the corner in the other room? Yeah, that's a beautiful thing. All that green stone, eh? Well, behind that fireplace is a triangular pocket, and you and I right now are standing on the other side of it. Oh, how very interesting. Uh, how big is this pocket, then? Well, not very. A man could squeeze in there, I suppose. Mm, a waste of space, I call it. Ah, you've got an opinion about everything. That I do, lad, that I do. And they're the only things I can truly call me own in this life. Run a stick through that plaster in the bucket, eh? I might have to mix up some more. Sure thing. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. 
What was that? What was what? Something just hit the floor next to your foot. What is it? Nothing. Nothing. It fell out of a hole in your pocket, didn't it? Give me that. Now wait, Tom. Charlie, it's a gold ring. And what if it is? Charlie, the doctor put his trust in us. Sure, and he's got himself a fancy big mahogany box full of rings and watches and cufflinks. He won't miss it. Here, I'll just take that back. That's not the point. Do you want to end up in the clink again? Put it back where you found it. I won't. Suppose somebody saw you take it. Ah, uh, the doc's over in Peoria, and Molly's down the market. There's nobody here in the house but us. That's even worse. We'll be the first one suspected. Give it to me. I'll put it back. No, it'll fetch us enough for a fine time at Cooper's. Come on now. This is your way, Charlie McCourt. I don't know why I keep stringing along with you, living hand to mouth, and you thieving or drinking us out of one livelihood after another. Now give it to me, and I'll no, take... no, it's mine, and I, I think give it to me. You let go of it. Let go. Yes, doctor. I just got the word from the Chicago Northwestern. They'll need me back over in South Peak, and so I'll be asking for me wages. Well, I'm sorry to lose you, men. You did fine work. The new wiring is practically perfect, and that wall in the parlor is absolutely gorgeous. I'm gratified to hear it, sir. But where's your friend? Why isn't he here today? Oh, uh, sir, Thomas, you'll be happy to learn... Uh, he also has been called back to the railroad, but one day before me, and he's asked me to collect his wages as well on his behalf. Uh, if that's all right with you, Doctor. Why, of course, of course. Happy to do it. <laughs> oh, oh, my God. <laughs> oh, my God. <laughs> I've got to get a sledgehammer. <laughs> Okay, let's see what's in here. Where's the flashlight? Grandpa, you actually did it. You must be Tommy. Don't worry, I'll get you out of there. What's left of you? In that pocket formed by the space behind the fireplace... And the two walls was a pile of old bones and a ragged suit of gray canvas, all covered with a grayish-white dust. And there beside the bones was the heavy plastering trowel that stove his head in. I took one of our empty cardboard moving cartons and carefully placed Tommy O'Bannon's remains inside, carried them out to the far end of the backyard, and dug a hole by moonlight. As I was pressing the sod back down, I glanced at my watch and saw it was almost 3 a.m., Well, Mr. O'Bannon, you got your wish. You got out of there after 30 years of being walled up inside. I'm sorry for what my grandfather did to you, and I'm ashamed to learn that on top of everything else, he was a killer. May you rest in peace. After I said those words, I walked back to the house, coming to the realization that this guy, this ghost of Tommy O'Bannon, had probably come to me because of my connection with his killer, 
my grandpa. I felt sick, sick in my gut, sick in my heart. I knew I couldn't live in this house anymore, not after, not after finding out what had happened. Huh? What's that? Oh, what did I do? What anybody would have done, I guess. I set the place on fire, burned it down to the ground. That was more than 50 years ago, so the statute of limitations has run out on that. Yeah, nobody suspected me and nobody got hurt either. Sandy and the kids were at her folks. And the house was on a bluff, remember? And the best thing of all, Sandy's dad was an insurance man, and his housewarming gift to us was a sweet homeowner's policy. Welcome back, fiends. A few of my mummy pals stopped by to sample my inherited whiskey. So I'll be with you in just a moment. We're just wrapping up. <laughs> oh, I hope you enjoyed our ghost story for tonight. It's called Get Me Out of Here. <laughs> Written especially for our series by our director, Pete Lutz. He wants me to tell you that he wrote it in the style of an episode of the classic old-time radio series, Quiet, Please. Coincidentally, in case you didn't know, both Mr. Lutz and the creator of Quiet, Please, Willis Cooper, hail from the same small town in central Illinois, where tonight's story was set. <laughs> and I... Of course, am your ghostly ghost, <clears throat> your ghostly host, <laughs> Cadaver Quivery, saying, remember, don't take candy from stranglers. Episode 1 of The Cellar's third miniseries. It was written and directed by Pete Lutz. The theme was composed by Tom Rory Parsons. Our cast consisted of the following players. Pete Lutz as Gene. Carol Cron as Sandy. Orlando Zagara as Trey Boatwright. Isla Brawley as Eric, Paul Arbisi as Charlie McCourt, John Bell as Tom O'Bannon, Rachel Pulliam as The Servant, and Chuck Wilson as Dr. McBain. Additional music by Dr. Ross Bernhardt. The Cellar is a 63 audio production mixed and mastered in Corpus Christi, Texas. This is Trevor Rhines speaking. Join us next week for episode two, Four Bros in a Deer Camp, by Will Anderson and Pete Lutz. That's next time on The Cellar. Yeah, 63 audio.
This is mutual. Now, you seem to me to be a connoisseur of the best of radio drama. In which case, make sure you're subscribed to the Monday Matinee Feed. There we have our weekly series of dramatic, theatrical, classic, eclectic and live radio drama. So, yeah, either the main Mutual Audio Network feed for all types and genres of audio drama or the Monday Matinee. And we'll see you there. The Mutual Audio Network. Listening and imagining together.